Hello. That was a seamless introduction. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name's Alice. I'm your host of The Water Cooler tonight. Thank you. Hi. Uh, what's your name, sir? <laughs> Yelled out. Tane. Tane. Hey, nice to meet you, Tane. Um, now's not really the time, but... Uh, <laughs> We can have a chat after and really get to know each other. Uh, my name is Alice. I'm the host of the Water Cooler this evening, and it is our first Water Cooler back for the year. So give yourself a round of applause. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> if your New Year's resolution was to attend more water coolers, uh, anyone's had that New Year's resolution? Great, okay, uh, save it for next year. <laughs> that means you can have the year off water coolers after this one. I'm kidding, come back, what have I done? Uh, so the today's water cooler is called uh, Lighting the Fire. Uh, yes, I'm just double checking, that's absolutely true. Uh, and it's we're talking about uh, pride, basically, and what that means to um, each of the speakers tonight. I'm going to talk a little bit about what that um, means to me. Uh, it means, you know, it means a variety of different things, uh, and you're going to hear all about it. <laughs> Guys, it's the first one back. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like we've ha all had a rough start to the year, and uh, we're on the back foot a little bit. Uh, everyone was like, 2016 is the worst year ever, and now we're all like, can we go back? <laughs> I loved it back there. Uh, my favourite thing about people saying 2016 is the worst year ever is that, uh, in fact, the world's been really bad for a long time and now it's just, now it's just happening to white people. <laughs> and we're all like... A line has been crossed. <laughs> Suddenly we're all up in arms. Uh, but I am actually really grateful that what has happened is I feel like in my generation or the people I'm hanging out with especially is there is like this revolution of protesting. And I'm just like, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, get along to some if you can. <laughs> uh, they're a good time. No, uh, I mean that sincerely uh, because the, one of the things that I used to do with my family a lot uh, when I was younger was protest. Uh, my parents were, yeah, it was kind of one of those after-school activities. Uh, <laughs> my parents were sort of social activists uh, and so they would take me along to um, many protests uh, for many causes, many of which I now disagree with. Uh, um, <laughs> but I was happy to be a participant in them. So there were kind of the three things I was going to talk about about what pride meant to me. Um, before I get to those, though, I, should, I do feel like I should flag that this is the day before the Pride Festival, which is going to be starting tomorrow. So everyone make sure, yeah, woo! Uh, yeah, uh, that you get along to that, whether or not it's your New Year's resolution to attend more Pride Festivals. Because uh, there's going to be lots of great acts, lots of great shows, and it's a, it's a great thing to get out and support and just enjoy. Um, so your pride means things I wanted to talk about. The first was uh, that feeling of, I looked up the definition of it, because um, that's how all good speeches start. <laughs> At least they did for me for the first uh, 18 years of my life. Um, I looked up the definition and it was like this glow or this feeling of satisfaction you get when you've achieved something or when you possess a quality, a certain quality that people admire. So I was thinking about the, um, how that related to what we were talking about tonight and that feeling I get when I protest that I'm like proud to be a part of uh, whatever the 
causes and I'm happy to be surrounded by the people I'm surrounded by and I get that feeling um, you know in in kind of two three ways the first is at protests and concerts um, they're both the same to me <laughs> there's not a single concert or protest that I have attended that I have not cried at um, I love them. They fill me just with like the greatest warmth I could ever possibly feel. Uh, the other day I was at um, the, uh, not a march, it was more of like an occupation of Altair Square uh, against the Muslim ban, uh, so-called Muslim ban. Uh, classic libtard up here. Um, uh, I was in an occupation of that and I was having a good old cry, um, loving it and remembering all the times I'd had a good old cry uh, just a couple of months ago at Coldplay. Uh, <laughs> I had a great time and I feel a lot of pride for being a part of those things. You know, when I'm at Coldplay and I look around the stadium and I'm wearing a Coldplay t-shirt um, because I will not be ashamed um, and I see all the bracelets lighting up, I get this feeling, this very like sentimental feeling that we're all one. <laughs> and then I got that again at the Muslim ban occupation <laughs> of we're all one. So that's kind of like, I don't know if that's pride necessarily, but it does fill me with this warmth of being like connected to people and feeling like I'm a part of a community. So I guess that leads me into the thing that I feel most proud of uh, and that's, and I really can't take any credit for it necessarily, but that's my family. Um, you know, I, I, the other day, it was my sister's birthday and um, to celebrate, uh, she wanted to do an escape room. <laughs> um, has anyone done an escape room before? Yeah, cool. Um, anyone know of an what an escape room is? Yeah, all right. They're like, um, they're like a room you have to break out of. Um, and only like privileged people do them because those are the only kinds of people uh, breaking out of a room would sound fun to. Um, <laughs> so uh, we went as a family and we did um, boys v girls uh, because... I don't know. Um, nobody's perfect. Uh, and before we went in, they were giving us all of the instructions about what to do. And there's like a, you can get a little clue. If you're struggling, you can like press a button and they give you a clue. And we said to the lady who was giving us the instructions, you know, make sure, because we're competing, of course, make sure you tell us how many clues, um, you know, each of us gets so we can like shame the other team uh, and we did the escape room we were escaping Nazi Germany um, yeah and uh, my dad and all my brothers were escaping Alice in Wonderland um, the lady told us they were both equally difficult <laughs> and um, the I you know what I've said it out loud now and I'm hearing it back and <laughs> Um, I'm comfortable with it. Uh, no. And after my mum and my sister, my sister's friend and I, we all escaped um, Germany uh, during World War II. We came out of a room, the woman greeted us, and the first thing I asked was, um, did we get more clothes than the boys? And the woman said uh, to me, she said, no, if anything, they got more help with, than you. 
And we had got about five or six clues because um, whilst we all get along, we're not like um, great problem solvers. Uh, <laughs> and then we waited about five, ten minutes and uh, my dad and my brothers, they all arrived from their room um, after the harrowing escape from Alice in Wonderland. And uh, the first thing my dad asked us was, how many clues did we get? And I said, not many. How many did you get? And he said, two. So I knew instantly he was lying. And he said, go on, tell me how many clues did you get? And I said, none. <laughs> so I guess what my takeaway from that was um, is that I realized how similar I was to my family and how quickly we were prepared to lie if it meant winning. Uh, and for me, that was a beautiful moment. <laughs> But what, I mean, what happened after that was we all went out for a drink and we um, got a beer and we inevitably ended up talking about Trump and um, kind of what he means and uh, the various ways that he's affecting our society. And there were like loud arguments about it and there were, uh, you know, differing opinions. No one was pro-Trump, but um, some of them were sympathizers, as I'd call them, um, I won't name which of my brothers Ben it was would uh, <laughs> was like that, and uh, uh, you know we had these like really good discussions where they were robust and they didn't feel personal. They just felt like educational and fun and informative, and people were laughing and having a good time. And at the end of it, we all hugged and said goodbye. And I like was overwhelmed with pride that one, um, you know, my sister would want to spend her birthday with her family um, because there are many people who wouldn't. And secondly, that we could have these kinds of like arguments and um, discussions about it and then also didn't kiss each other goodbye um, while still being like, you're a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think that about any of them except for Ben sometimes. I just wish... Uh, <laughs> No, but so to me that filled me with this like huge pride, you know, it's, I'm fortunate that I don't have a family where our views are like so differing that they become kind of uh, impossible to overcome, but I feel uh, very fortunate that I have a family where you can have a differing point of view and have that point of view be respected and also uh, be told when you're wrong, um, which is something I've done more often than I've heard. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I've heard it more often than I've taken it on board. Um, so that was the thing. And then the final thing that I felt like I wanted to talk about pride in, because it was something that I'd kind of come to recently, was um, pride about being a woman. And um, I don't attach that to there being like any inherent value in there being a woman, but more just like growing into what that means and what that means for me and uh, how that's had an effect on my life. Um, Embarrassingly, uh, you know, when I was like 21, I was I was dead set on the fact that I was not a feminist, uh, and I thought that thing uh, because I was like, well, you know, feminism it means so many things now, it means nothing, and. Um, you know, so for me, like the evolution of coming to a place where now I'm wearing this T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> the future is female. Everyone should support Planned Parenthood. Um, coming to that place was kind of like an evolution of coming to recognize the, you know, the struggles and the advantages, you know, the complexity of what that identity can mean in the world. So for me, you know, uh, my New Year's resolution this year was... Um, to be uh, unashamedly ambitious, uh, yeah, which is um, 
something most of you apparently don't support. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, and I don't mean that to mean in a way of being boastful, but recognition of how often women, and uh, not just women, but women in, in New Zealand society can be deterred from feeling like they want to put their hand up and say, I want this thing, I can do this thing, I will do this thing. Because part of my evolution to becoming a feminist was realizing that... Um, you know, men don't necessarily know they can do the thing. They're just saying they can. And women, because we're not sure, often won't jump forward for it. So uh, that's why I guess that's another thing I've become, you know, proud of is that I'm surrounded by a group of people who are conscious and aware of these things and they're prepared to talk about them again and debate them and, you know, all of that uh, positive stuff that comes along with it. So... God, I don't know where I was going to end up on that. Yes, I do, actually. Um, so I was going to end on this one thing because I saw it on my mum and dad's wall the other day and uh, it filled me with pride. Uh, my parents are Catholics, um, which it comes with, you know, uh, hundreds of connotations. And um, I don't have time to go through the list of them. Uh, <laughs> but I saw on my mum and dad's wall the other day, uh, in 19, I think it was like 1982, 1983, uh, Pope John Paul visited uh, Auckland. And uh, my mum uh, authored an open letter to the paper. Uh, so you can all see it. Did you get it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to read this a little bit. It's in yellow. Um, she authored a letter to the paper that other people signed. It was an open letter. And uh, everyone, my, my, you know, everyone who was in her church community signed it. And then my dad and his friend decided to go along actually and visit and hear what the Pope had to say. And um, such was the effect of the letter that the police uh, followed them and escorted them to the protest, uh, not the protest, the speaking, because uh, they were worried they were terrorists um, back when the police suspected white people of that sort of shit. Um, so I'm just going to read this little bit. It's part of the open letter. Uh, yeah, here we go. Technology is amazing. Eh? I'm proud of Steve Jobs. Um, so there's a little beginning, but I'm just going to start right in the middle. We speak of Catholic women who are currently excluded by church policy and disciplines from ordination. We question the theological grounds for their exclusion. In our view, the denial of ordination for women is unjust. We are all equal by baptism. The gift of faith is freely available to all without distinction. Therefore, the ordained ministry should be open to all who feel called to proclaim good news of the Gospels in this way. In New, Zealand, women, in New Zealand, women make up over 60% of the adult Catholic population. In matters such as ordination, administration, and the shaping of church policy, they were denied equality with men. That this injustice be faced honestly and dealt with creatively is a matter of urgency. We are also aware that many women feel so distanced from the male hierarchical priesthood that access to ordination would be a hollow victory. We support the examination of the whole nature of ministry, its role and function. This examination needs to look at the widening of ministry to include the ordination of married as well as single people. So that's just a bit in the middle of the letter there, and it goes on to talk about in, uh, inclusivity of other people as well in the church. The reason I read that bit specifically is because I was proud to be the daughter of a woman who was talking about these issues when she was my age. Yeah, so that's that. Uh, that's me. Uh, we're going to move on uh, for that with a laugh. Um, I haven't got one prepared. <laughs> you guys will just have to come up with it. Uh, knock, knock. 
I don't have anything for that. Um, hold on, give me a second. Someone throw me a topic. Anything. Library. Library. What's the deal with books? Um, people be reading them. Okay, on that note, <laughs> uh, we're going to bring up our first speaker for the, uh, for the evening. And so please welcome to the stage writer, actor, and activist Cole Mayers. We did. I thought you did it great. Uh, no, it should be on. Why don't you, you can give it a test if you like. Hello. Can you guys hear that? Yes. Cool. Cause, tones. Yeah, I'd hate for you to miss this, so listen up. <laughs> so, Cole, you're a writer, an actor, and an activist, and earlier you were like, writer first. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I guess it's probably because it's taken me a long time to actually feel like I can own that. Yeah. Um, and I remember a time a few years ago when my sister and a few other people were going overseas and um, well, the mic just <laughs> didn't practice this <laughs> um, and you know having to write what you are on the arrival form and the, and the departure form and at the time I wasn't, I wasn't actually doing anything but my sister was very hesitant about writing artist on there um, because again the same thing she had this idea that you know that was something which was externally kind of bestowed upon you yeah and then you were like oh goodness i've you know i've been given that now i can i can claim that title like it was some kind of knighthood oh my to god to say that you were actually a creative who i know i was doing cool stuff yeah i agree with you 100 percent. i'm a writer as well but on my um like customs form i write contractor <laughs> well, yes, I, well. <laughs> I made the mistake once of trying to be funny on my customs form oh no um, and <laughs> god well, I, just... I was unemployed and i was really pissed off with having to write unemployed and being like not like I already don't feel bad enough about that all the time anyway yeah um so I wrote I wrote that I was a rat trainer (laughs) because I had pet rats and yes technically I was training them to do things like climb onto a box and stand up and get treats and things like that oh my gosh but I did not I'll never talk bad of rats again well I didn't actually anticipate how much that would be interesting to people whose jobs (laughs) was to stamp really boring forms um and so like literally everyone that had to look at this piece of paper was like oh that's interesting like how do you do that and I was like oh god (laughs) I should have spent a lot more time like planning my backstory <laughs> and I think I just ended up saying something like oh I'm just you know, for short films and such not you know not specifying that the films were all taken on my own camera phone <laughs> you know for really my own amusement <laughs> and did involve things like you know putting you know those glow in the dark things which you can connect and make them into bracelets uh, well, yes I do Coldplay uh, well, yeah, yeah. as a concert and yeah. protest aficionado yes same we're same aware of these things well I did once one once where I put different coloured um, bangles around their middle oh my gosh and turned the lights off <laughs> and filmed it as they ran around the room oh my god <laughs> do you know what it's so, so weird yes, I've I done was, that was exact same thing chronically underemployed at this point <laughs> Can I just tell you, um, when I was unemployed, I took up dollhouse making. Um, that's, that's a pretty expensive hobby. It was so a, expensive. I got a subs- unemployed person. Oh, my God. I got a subscription to a magazine. I now have, like, I have, like, a hundred unmade pieces of furniture in my shed. Um, I'm just going to bet it was one of those magazines which cost 99 cents the first time around. 
Uh, and then you're like, brilliant, what a bargain. And then you're like, I'm sorry, $22. I can't confirm that, but that does sound like me. Yeah. <laughs> I love when a bargain. Like, Total cost of dollhouse, $10,749 or whatever. And I shudder to think. Maybe it's tax deductible. That's something I should say for after the show. Um, well, is there anything you want to say about what you're going to talk about before you just launch into it? Um... Uh, not really. I guess oh, I'm, I don't know, I'm probably the reason why that's on the door. And maybe I've all sort of lulled you into a false sense of thinking that I'm just going to get up and be hilarious. Um, don't be lulled. Yeah. Um, that's not going to be the case. Yeah, cool. We'll take it away, Cole. All right. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with microphones. Um... I was lying in bed a while ago and I'd been up for a very, very long time and I was kind of on that point between being asleep and being awake where I have all my best ideas and then promptly forget them. <laughs> and But this one stuck with me because I was thinking about... Um, I was in quite a lot of pain um, and I would like to say that that was because I just had some awesome sex or something like that, but that actually wasn't the case. <laughs> I'm just unspecified chronic joint problems. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, yeah, and I was thinking about it, and as I was laying there, I realised that my sense of, of proprioception, which is basically the sense that we all have of where our body is in space when we're not looking at it, so the ability to do that, well, good, I did it. Otherwise, that would have been a bit embarrassing. Um, basically, the thing which stops us from turning into jellyfish when the lights go out. Um, but I realised that on top of that sense of my body, I also had this other sense of where my body was that was informed entirely by where was hurting. Um, and I was thinking about it, and I was like getting into this, this quite loud model of my body and realised that in this model, I didn't have any toes on my right foot, and I didn't have a left elbow or a left thumb or large bits of my thighs. And it was such a strange realization to think that my idea about where I was and what parts of my body existed were totally informed by what was hurting. Um, and I, it got me thinking about a conversation that I had with a friend a few years ago, and we used to kind of talk about things. We were both going through some shit in our lives at the time. And I remember saying to him, I was like, okay, I've got this very weird problem everything is going very well. What do I do? <laughs> and it was funny because I think only because I'd spoken that out loud did I realise that how much of my life was kind of based in the sense of trauma and that almost when that was gone away, I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, and so when these kind of two ideas came together about those things, I started just thinking about how much of my life that sort of reflected on. And, you know, this idea that unless I was hurting, that I didn't exist, had somehow silently filled up all of my past. Um, I, four years ago, I was a complete wreck. Um, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict and anorexic and bulimic, um, suicidally depressed. I always feel like I'm like ordering some really complicated thing off a menu. Um, <laughs> But I was having panic attacks leaving the house and intermittently psycho psychotic and so, you know, things weren't really going that well. Um, 
and I was about to kill myself. And I kind of, this whisper in my head told me at that time was sort of like, it's not that you want to die, it's that you don't want to live like this. Which kind of sounds the same, but it's actually very different. You know, the second one gives you a lot more wiggle room. Um, and so I kind of, in my typical fashion, or those of you who know me, I was like, all right, let's get out a large piece of paper. <laughs> and kind of started sketching it all down and, and putting all these things in place and, and looking at this sort of ecosystem of, of dysfunction. And I think prior to that, I just thought that it was all kind of a bit random or I was just this super fucked up person. And when I had it down on paper, I started to realize just how much these things were interconnected and that it wasn't just about the sense of destruction, but it was also about survival, that all of these things were actually related to survival. And also just how much they kind of balanced each other out. That in many ways, like, my anorexia stopped me from drinking myself to death because the calories. Um, <laughs> and, and smoking weed all day meant that I was actually keeping down enough food to, like, not starve to death. And the fact that I would have panic attacks meant that I hadn't actually graduated to heroin because I assume you probably have to leave the house for that. Um, <laughs> but thinking about all these things and just being like, I'm looking at this map and feeling like I'm missing something, that I've got all these kind of evidence in, in this fossil record that I'm looking at, but I haven't found a complete specimen of what was before that. And, and for me, that was gender. Um, and it was this idea that I was so terrified of what that quiet part of myself was trying to say that I had constructed this very complex kind of trauma skeleton that was just so loud I couldn't actually hear what that true part of myself was saying. Um, and I just think, as well, I, the way that I thought about gender at the time, and you know, unfortunately it's still quite the case, is this idea that you know, transgender identities are dysfunctional or a disorder. And so when I was already struggling with this feeling that where was I underneath all of these diagnoses, that even though I was working actively to kind of let those go, there was still a huge amount of fear underneath that what happens when I get to the bottom of them and there's nothing there. And it was really fucking hard. <laughs> um, and even now I look back and I'm shocked actually at the fact that I managed to make my way out of all of that. But I think a large part of that was this realization that I had part way through that maybe I'd got the whole basis of the whole thing wrong and that I had been operating from this idea that freedom meant escaping from pain. Um, but unfortunately all my kind of attempts at escape <laughs> just made everything worse. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, let's get some more evidence. My dad's an electrical engineer, my mum's a teacher and an artist, like I never had a chance to choose a side. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's get some more evidence and kind of started becoming really interested in my pain. And it sounds really funny, but once I stopped thinking about it all as just being like, it's bad, run away, and started finding out more about what it actually felt like, considering, you know, I was like, well, if I'm going to run away from it, I might as well know what I'm running away from. Um, and finding out that actually there, were, there was some pain which was a deep kind of aching pain and there was a kind of pain which was a hot, itchy kind of pain and that electrical, twitchy, panicky kind of pain. And, and at some point as well I kind of felt like I was 
getting on good terms with my pain. We were getting kind of friendly. And it was that sense of being really interested in it and fascinated by it that I started to learn the language of it. Um, at the same time, I was feeding birds a lot. <laughs> um, I just buy bags of wild bird seed at the supermarket and throw it all over my lawn and like, go to town birds. Um, <laughs> chronically underemployed. Um, <laughs> but, but a lot of the birds that were kind of landing on the lawn were, were pigeons and doves. And one day I thought, I was like, I know what the difference between the two of them is, but I wonder what scientifically the difference is. And it turns out it's actually not, there isn't that much difference between them. In our common usage, we know that doves are one thing and, and pigeons are another thing, but actually the science behind it is a lot blurrier than that. Um, and it just really got me thinking about that, the sense that, you know, the idea we have about pigeons is that they're sort of ugly and, and gross and stupid and very mundane and annoying and, and go away. And the idea that we have about doves is that they're beautiful and clean and they mean peace and love and, you know, stick around, you beautiful, beautiful creatures. Um, but this idea that actually, at the core of it, there wasn't really any separation between the two of them just really made me start thinking about the way in which that everyday stuff and that sacred stuff is a lot closer than we kind of think about it. And at the time I was getting a lot of tattoos and things as well. Um, <laughs> I don't have an OHD, so. <laughs> um, and they were really important to me because there was the sense that I was taking control of my pain and at the same time relinquishing control of my pain. That it wasn't about creating this kind of tattooed map of freedom sounds really terrible now um, but but it was that kind of freedom of not escaping the freedom of settling into things as they are and settling into my body as it is um, and as I was kind of lying in bed just recently again I was thinking about that and thinking that it was really no wonder that I just got so tangled up with everything in the past because trying to hold the idea that I was nothing but pain that I didn't exist if I wasn't hurting. And the idea that pain was something to run away from, to escape from, they don't really leave you very very much to go on <laughs> from there. Um, but as I was lying there and just and listening to my pain properly, I started to hear that kind of quiet voice underneath it that was never was never worried about where I was because it always knew. And I, I said to the same friend that I was talking about earlier, I spoke to him again recently and just said, you know, everything's going really well again. <laughs> but I'm not afraid of pain anymore. But I think even more importantly than that is I'm not afraid of, of disappearing if life isn't hurting anymore. And I also said, I'm probably going to get another tattoo <laughs> of a particular bird. <laughs> because I do, I think about, in many ways, my pain has become to me like, you know, both my pigeon and my dove, you know, my everyday and my sacred. Thank you.
that's the reason why I'm wearing this scarf, even though it's quite hot up here. <laughs> is that, what, what kind of bird is that on there? I think it's a swallow, actually. Oh, nice. I don't, I mean, I don't think pigeons are particularly popular okay. decoration. <laughs> I would like to change this fact. When I, when I was um, tw 20 years old, um, it was a great time, uh, I lived in Melbourne and I got um, a tattoo of five birds on my foot um, and they had no meaning behind them uh, other than I called my mother and was like, I'm going to get a tattoo. And she was like, make it meaningful. I was like, I'll get five. Because um, <laughs> that's how many children I'm one of. Um, <laughs> but they are not a nice bird. They are a seagull. Um, and they look, as someone informed me immediately after I got the tattoo, like uh, five moustaches on my foot. <laughs> so I don't know why I felt like I should share that. Um, but now we all know. <laughs> five moustaches is also pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You should come up with an alternative like reason for your mum as to why. Yeah, you're Depending right. on what, what she thinks it is. Oh, God, I'm going to play so many games with her now. Um, so I guess one of the things, I, I mean, thank you so much for sharing those stories. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, for me, I feel, you know, uh, for example, the, the term cisgender has only really entered my vocabulary in like the last year or two. Like I don't remember a time when it was... Like, I remember it not being there, but I don't remember a time where it turned up. And so one of the interesting things is I know that right now I'm just, like, discovering this world that people have been dealing with um, for forever. And uh, so I guess my question after hearing your talk and hearing you um, talk about your own personal pain is, uh, are there things that can uh, change in the, in the external environment that um, either lessen your own pain or make, like, walking through it feel easier? I think that's a super good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I kind of talk about this kind of stuff quite a lot, actually, because, like you said earlier, I'm, a, a, you know, an artist and an activist, and I, I said to someone recently, I was like, being those two things always feels like you're sort of wearing two hats that want to eat each other. Right, okay. <laughs> I mean, they go well together, but sometimes it is a so complex being, relationship. Being, being which two things? Like... Um, being a creative person, yeah, I always just say artist because it's easier than yeah. rattling off all the other bits. Um, and then trying to make art which is activist or do activism sure. which has a creative component to it. And sometimes you constantly feel like you're like, this wouldn't be the kind of thing you'd do as an artist, mm. but I need to because otherwise I feel, you know, I feel like a responsibility to my community, you know, or the other way around and be like, how can we make this more this but not get in the way of the message so yeah it's quite complicated but of, um of like finding that balance between what is just like purely activism and what is whatever yeah. you conceive absolutely yeah and i mean just thinking of your question as well i think about dysphoria or you know for many trans people the sense that your body doesn't feel quite right or quite yours mm. um and that can be in a, a variety of different ways and a variety of different levels yeah. um, but I think about that in, in relation to other kinds of pain as well because with physical pain there's two elements to it you know there is the physical aspect of you know injury or whatever's going on but there is also the emotional and mental element which is you know can add to it or can lessen the physical pain yeah. by saying things like something is broken I am damaged um, I'm never going to get better or, or the opposite, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think the same with dysphoria. There is two elements. There is the sense which around 
you know, some part in your brain saying, I had a plan about what this was supposed to be and like, this ain't on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but also the part, the community, societal element to that about being like how much of the things that I don't like about my body or I'd want to change about my body wouldn't actually bother me if I wasn't kind of getting this constant reinforcement from externally saying you can't be this and look like this yeah totally or you should be ashamed of that yeah and the thing is is I don't I don't think I'll ever know I won't ever know unless I can go back and you know retcon my whole life and say <laughs> you know change society I'm like great movie though let's plan that one um yeah and so just what you're talking about that sense of what can people do is I think recognizing that recognizing that the way the mainstream media in particular and a, and a lot of narratives and stuff that talk about trans people often want to make it a very individual problem yeah. like you are really sad about this fact so we're going to not be mean to you and we'll give you all the surgery which we think that you should have or mm. expect that you want to have whole nother kettle of fish mm. um, but, and instead look at it like what about society can we change to make this different and yeah. it doesn't even have to be big things it can be stuff like, you know, I do this with my friends all the time, as if we're at a place which has gender-neutral bathrooms, yeah. being like, hey, awesome, notice your gender-neutral bathrooms, felt really awesome about it. Like, yeah, 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 like reinforcing or, yeah, things that are already happening. Yeah, or places that don't, being like, hey, I noticed that you have binary bathrooms, have you thought about gender-neutral bathrooms because yeah. this reason? Um, if you're in spaces recognising that, you know, people might have different pronouns than what you think they might have by looking at them. Yeah. Um, questioning stuff. I did this one time where I was at getting an x-ray or something like that, and there was a thing on the wall which was like, ladies, if you're pregnant, blah, blah, blah. I was like, one, let's not scream ladies in, like, comic sans on the wall. Like, that's just offensive. I'm going to have to remove, um, like, half the posters from my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. But it was this thing, you know, about separating and wrapping your head around that idea about being able to separate you know, body parts and names yeah. and pronouns from gender identity yeah. and going, actually, surprisingly, not all people who get pregnant identify as women and, you know, not all yeah. people who identify as women want to get pregnant because that's also, you know, a very important feminist issue as well. No, I know. Like, I was, I was, think, I was talking about it with somebody the other day. I can't remember who. Um, it's not important. I don't even know why I mentioned it. Uh, about why they don't have on medical forms why your gender and your sex aren't separated. Or even just like thinking about why is that relevant? Like, well, are you actually going to be doing some stuff internally, or you know, is that important to know that, oh, or is it more important to know, you know, what I want you to call me when you come into the room? Yeah, I guess I was thinking in a medical context, they could or would be both relevant. Yeah, yeah. But so that's yeah, I mean, to hear, see, because here I was just like being like, I'm a trailblazer with this opinion. <laughs> and uh, now I've learned um, I'm not. Because <laughs> that's the thing is so often you get asked that question and you're like, I don't know, uh, is that actually relevant to know that right yeah. now? Because in generally it's not. And I think it's yeah, interesting about the, the, the conversation yeah. around the census the last time we had one of those was they were like, oh, you know, we're not going to add any other genders on there because it will just, it will make all the data incorrect. And I was like... I'm sorry, let, my, let me get my head around this. You are deliberately like excluding people mm. you know that exist because you don't want to get the data wrong. Yeah, that's crazy. That feels like the opposite of the way stats work. That's ridiculous, especially because you can legitimately write Jedi as your religion. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's crazy. Not that I've done it. Uh, um, didn't like Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> 
controversial opinion. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to divide the audience. Um, I'm hoping they turn against me so I can win them back and feel proud. Um, Good segue. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for chatting tonight, Cole. Thanks, Cole Mayer, everyone. Cool. So we're just gonna uh, we're gonna motor on through. We're gonna invite our second speaker up to the stage. She's a reporter on B, a lifeguard, and a master's student. It's Lillian Hanley. <laughs> hey. Hi. How you? How, I think it's on. Have it. Have it. Yeah. There Hi. you go. Nice. So, what are you doing your master's in? Oh. <laughs> I thought I had a night off. Uh, um, no. It's about uh, John Key. Oh, okay. Love him. Uh, miss him every day. Uh, uh, pro John Key or anti? Uh, my current working title is John Key is a fuckwit. So. Oh, so that's a pro. <laughs> no, uh, for the record, I'm not pro John Key. Uh, pro his retirement. Um, cool. I'm not, because it's ruined my whole thesis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now what do I talk about? Oh, well, Bill English is a fuckwit. You could have a go at him. Um, <laughs> uh, is there anything you want to say tonight? Let us know before you, like, dive on into your... Oh. Do you just want to sit in this for a bit? <laughs> yeah. Feel the vibe. I have one more question. Yeah. Why are you lifeguard? How did that happen? Oh, my mum made me do it. Oh. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, no, we had no choice. I was um, a lifeguard once at a pool. Okay, that's not the most oppressive regime you could live under. <laughs> All my children will be lifeguards. Yeah. That's fair. Thanks for the skills, Mum, I can use for a lifetime. Uh, no, you're uh, right. Sorry, I'm yeah, just trying to I was funny. a lifeguard once at a pool, Mount Albert Aquatic Centre. Me too. Oh, were you? <laughs> okay, here's my secret shame. I never did a first aid course. Uh, um... I know, it's terrible, but I needed the job, and um, they kind of. Let and you... after I got the job, I told them on the sly, oh. I told one of the people, and she was like, if something happens, just look at me and make, um, make a sign, <laughs> I think, I can't even remember what the sign was, like I think habit. it was help, uh, <laughs> yeah, but fortunately nothing ever happened on my watch. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I feel like you've all thought less of me now. Um, you try B16 and get a job. Um, anyway, uh, on that note, why don't you take it away with your chat? Okay. Cool. Good luck out there. Let's give Lillian a round of applause. This is awkward. Um, okay. Tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, Ko te kaupapa o tōku kōrero a te pōnei, ko tōku whānau, nā reira he tika ki te tīmata uh, me tōku whakapapa, me ki, uh, he uri tēnei o ngā tāngata kiriti uh, i tai mai uh, o kūtipuna ki tēnei whenua marunga i ngā waka i wehe mai ingarangi airani me kotarana. Uh, he hononga tāku ki uh, tiatiawa ngā mahanga tairi me ngāti mahanga, uh, i tipu au i raro i te maru o maunga whau me maunga taranaki uh, he pākea a hau and ko te reo Māori tōku reo tuatai Thank you everybody um, My name is Lillian and my talk tonight is actually about my family I decided to copy Alice but um, because of that I thought I would start just by laying out uh, where I'm from uh, who I'm from 
um, and the links that I have to this land. And I also stated that I am Pākehā, but my first language was Māori. Um, and I say that because that's something that informs who I am um, and how I sort of engage with the world around me. Um, I also say that because it's something that is not very common. Uh, you don't really hear about white people that learn Māori as their first language here. Um, and something else that isn't co quite common is having a gay dad, a lesbian mum, a bisexual mum, three sets of grandparents, a stepdad, a former stepmum, and 15 brothers and sisters. Yeah. So, so, yeah, when I uh, got asked to speak at a water cooler event, uh, my first reaction was no, because I'd hate standing up and talking in front of people about myself. Um, but because of the unashamedly ambitious 2017 that us women are having, I decided to um, change my mind. And I thought that, yeah, actually it might be a good time to stand up and talk, um, but also talk about my family, because the um, topic became lighting my fire in a roundabout way. I sort of drew that to my family um, because they are kind of what, they are what make me who I am today. Um, so there's sort of two reasons that I that I came to talk about my family. Um, and one is uh, the idea that my story isn't very common um, and that uh, I often get asked how that works, um, but also <laughs> get told that it's really, really incredible, that it's really, really amazing, um, which it is. Um, but that's I only think that because that's my family and that's what I know, and I think they're really fucking cool. But a lot of people think that because it's just not normal. Um, and so on one level, I kind of um, wish that we did live in a society where somebody would hear that story and think that that is normal. Um, so I'm sort of standing up here tonight to talk about that and normalise it. <clears throat> but also um, because when I was 12, I, um, I became acutely aware of just how unnormal that was to some people. And ever since then, I sort of had... Um, I retreated in a way of, of, of uh, sorry, I retreated from talking about my family or, or being open about my family, um, and I think that kind of sucks because my family is really cool, <laughs> and I think that they deserve every uh, public shout out that they possibly can have. So, here's to more of them, Mum. Um, so that was a big long intro. Um, I did actually, uh, I drew a diagram. Um, to try and make things a little bit clearer um, because I am going to go through this before I um, get to what happened when I was 12. I'm just going to try and segue to um, turning this on. Sorry, guys. Cool, OHP. Don't know if you guys remember these. So, okay, this doesn't make any sense, um, but it will soon. So, um, the story that I'm going to tell tonight is the story basically of how um, I came to be, but it's actually more about everybody around me because I'm just a very small part of it. Um, and the story isn't perfect, and I'm not a very good storyteller, so just bear with me. Um, but every time I tell a story... It's different and it's confusing and some people need paper and some people need 
all sorts of things. My friends actually joke because I said that I was going to do a diagram tonight and he said, oh, are you going to like try and draw it on the side of the sky tower because there won't be any space. <laughs> but um, I've managed to get it into this kind of little weird diagram and um, it does always start with my mums. So we'll start there. I've got two mums, as I said. Um, Tamsin, who's here tonight, and uh, Leonie. So I have a Māori mum and a Pākehā mum. And I say that because... Uh, that informs my sort of bicultural positioning that I kind of occupy today, and it's quite important to me. Um, but Tamsin is my Pākehā mum, um, and she goes by Tam Tam to my friends, and Leonie goes by Lily to my friends because it started getting really confusing when I'd say, oh, I'm going away with mum, or um, mum uh, got me this, or oh, it's mum's birthday next week, I can't be there. And every, every single time, without fail, oh, which mum? So eventually we've got nicknames. So we've got Tam Tam and we've got Lily. And they were together like ages ago, <laughs> way, way back in the day. Um, and uh, they were both learning Māori, actually, and that's why um, both me and my brothers, um, my older brothers, were taught to deal as our first language. Um, so we've got Tam Tam and we've got Lily. I had this whole like rapport about the witch mum joke, but... <laughs> Anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> um, it was just really fun, like when we were kids, um, because nobody kind of understood. Like I'd be like, oh, you've got two mums. And they're like, oh, you know, like a stepmom. And I'm like, no, 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 that's just, you know, my two mums. And it would take them like a fucking long time to get it. And they, we wouldn't tell them. Like, we would just let them figure it out because we were like, well, yeah, we've got two mums. What, what do you have, a mum and a dad? Oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so... Um, it, was, it wasn't until I was 14, actually, that somebody immediately said, oh, they're lesbian, and I hugged her. I didn't know her, but I hugged her, and I said, you have to be my friend. So, <laughs> Okay, Tam Tam and Lily. And so um, they decided they wanted to have kids, right? And um, Lily, my brothers came first, Te Ao Te Rangi and Kumerua, uh, and Lily and Tam Tam approached Stephen, who's my brother's dad, um, and he had a partner at the time, so she also decided to be part of this family. Um, and my brothers were born. And then uh, after that, um, Stephen and his partner Julie had Dyka, and then they separated, and Stephen got with Louis, and they had Teomahi, Awatea, and Peter. I'm saying all the kids' names because we're going to tally it up because I, I promise you there's 16 of us all together. <laughs> so <coughs> Teo and Kume came along. And then Tam Tam decided that she wanted a baby. And she approached um, my dad, Paul. And there's a number of Pauls in the story. So <laughs> Paul, Paul was going to be dad. Um, and dad helped to set up the Gay and Lesbian Singers Choir. So um, I often tell my friends, oh, yeah, my mum and dad met at a Gay and Lesbian Singers Choir. <laughs> and that gets them going. Um, so mum met dad and... Um, he is from Taranaki, where my Māori mum is from. Um, and at the time, he was with uh, Tai, who was part of the Black Grace family. Um, he to you, Tani. And uh, they agreed to also be part of this family. Um, and basically, I'm not going to go into the logistics of it, but I wasn't born in a Petri, or made in a Petri dish. Or, people often ask me that, um, but I wasn't. Uh, it took four people to make me. So, yeah, suck on that. I think, that, um, think that's kind of cool. Uh, it's a lot of love, you know? Anyway, moving on. 
Um, we fast forward now. So there's three of us, the three sort of older ones, and we've got four on the one side. Um, Dad's partner, Ty, they're not together anymore, but Ty also fathered um, uh, twins for another lesbian couple, um, and those two are Ty and Kitty, and I sort of claim them as my brother and sister as well. Um, so now we've got... I don't know, but we'll get to the end. Um, fast forward a few years. So when I was seven and my brothers, older brothers are ten, uh, my mum's separated. And so from there, my Māori mum met Whainga, um, and they were together for a while. Um, and together, they adopted... A f- oh, I should have moved this up. Sorry. See how I've crossed that out? Yeah, that's Tam Tam and Lily. No more. <laughs> um... <laughs> And we moved to Lili and Ngarimu, right? So there we go. Um, now we've got... Um, first, they adopted Moana, who's my little sister, and we got her when she was um, two. And um, we actually... She was being fostered by Brian Tarmaki's brother, Doug Tarmaki. So they weren't very happy with lesbians coming in and taking the child, but it's fine. Um, Moana came to us speaking English, um, and she's now 13 years old and fluent in Te Reo. Um, to the point that she mixes up sea slugs with sea sluts. It's just it's fun when we're on holiday. Um, after that, Whainga gave birth to uh, Te Ahuru and Matariki. Now, their dad is Paul. That's, so we've got our second Paul. Paul Reynolds. Um, he is their father. And those are my baby twins. Um, yeah, who I love very much. Just had to say that. Um, don't know what we've got here. Oh, we've got T and P. Okay, so we're back to Tam Tam. So on the other side of that, um, Tamsin met um, Paul, so our third Paul, and he is he he's Paulie, so he can be Paulie, um, and he's pretty much my stepdad, uh, and he has four children: Kieran, who's now my big sister, and Hidawini, uh, Kiharoa, and Taimana. So now we've got all the kids, and that is 16 of us all together, just so you know. Um, and a lot of people do question that. They sort of say, oh, well, they're not actually all your real brothers and sisters, or that's your half-brother or your stepsister or whatever. And I sort of say to them, no, <laughs> actually. <laughs> no, no, they're all my um, brothers and sisters, because if you thought about it quite like that, um, I would actually be by blood an only child. And if I know one thing in this world, it's that I am not an only child. <laughs> so that's, that's the diagram. Um, so when I was 12, I was an intermediate, and um, these girls started calling me Vibes. And they, they made this sign behind my back whenever I came around or whatever. I didn't know what it was about, uh, but then eventually I found out. Um, and it was uh, apparently because my mums were lesbian that I was lesbian. And I was just like, that's really stupid. Because <laughs> that's not actually how it works. Um, homosexuality is not hereditary. And if anything, I take after my dad. So that's, they sort of didn't know that. But anyway, um, at the time, I thought that was really stupid. But I kept my cool. And actually one of the girls, after I found out, she came up to me and she sort of touched me. She was like, oh, are you okay? Because I had got upset, you know. I was like so mad. I was like, what? What? But anyway, she came up to me and she tapped me um, on the shoulder and she said, are you okay? And I sort of looked at her and I was like, I could have punched her. I could have. But I said, don't touch me. You might get vibes. And walked away. 
Um, and I only did that because my mums had told me that if you ever hurt somebody, you have to apologise to them. Not only them, but their siblings, their parents, their grandparents, and their tipuna. <laughs> and I was like, I just don't want to waste my time doing that. So I won't punch you and I'll walk away. Which is great. But in terms of the effect that that had on me, um, I'd like to think that it didn't have an effect, you know, because I had always thought that my family was fucking amazing and I had been brought into this huge, loving, ridiculously complicated family. And um, I hadn't realised that it, it wasn't what everybody else thought was kind of, or at least these girls at school thought was normal. Um, and it was quite, it was alienating and um, it hurt. Um, and after that, I didn't talk about my family. Um, I retreated and my best friends from Lifesaving, um, it was a great thing, thank you for forcing me to go. Um, my best friends from there didn't know about my family um, for a very long time. They sort of, um, they didn't, I mean, they didn't ask, I guess. They did, but I would avoid it. I'd avoid it a lot. When I was younger, I'd avoid it just because it was easier. I didn't have to explain everything. But as I was older, I avoided it because um, of the judgment or the possible judgment. And it took me a while to sort of grow out of that. Um, and it was actually because of my family that I was able to, because they also just told me it was really stupid. Um, that you know what those girls had done, um, but it took me it took me quite a few years to sort of come to terms with it and and be okay about talking about it publicly. Um, and this is probably the first time I've ever done it in a room full of people. Um, and Tyador, who's <laughs> dad's ex-partner's kid, that one. Um, she told me recently that she also stood up in front of her university class and talked about her family and that was the first time that she'd done it and I was really proud of her um, because she talked about her sort of struggle of whether to stand up or not um, but I thought that this time yeah I would stand up and I would say thanks mum and my other mum and my dad for having me um, and going through all the shit too, because the world kind of sucks sometimes. Um, but yeah, here we are. That was so interesting. It's it's like a great sitcom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you see it show up on like TV3 uh, 18 months from now, it was an original idea. <laughs> it definitely not stolen from I, I have thought about it. When I was young, I wanted to like email Alan and be like, yo, Alan. Yeah. Check this that's out. That's a great idea. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. I hate Alan, but that's yeah. a different. Yeah. This is well, now something like for a different time. Um, well, so I. Okay, I'm just going to gather my thoughts on it a little bit. I've written down here bathroom time because when you said how many people were in your family, I was like, how do you schedule showers and shit? Um, but did you all ever, was there ever a point where you were all kind of like occupying the same space at one time? Or? Yeah, so I mean the most, 
who lived together with six. Okay. At one time. Yeah. Wait. Oh, that's manageable. Yeah. Is it? And yeah. So yeah, but it it, it kind of worked because there was the three older ones. So it was me and my brothers were a bit older than our three younger siblings. Yeah. Um. So I think. Oh, to be honest, I didn't shower a lot. So, <laughs> actually, I was just lazy. Oh, and yeah. my brothers, they fucking took forever in the shower. So oh. I just sort of gave it up. <laughs> oh, wow. I never thought of it like that. Ah. <laughs> uh, they weren't just washing oh, their hair. Okay. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> The three younger ones did bath at night, so it was yeah. fine, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, it's not the most important question, I'm no. sure. <laughs> Just logistically, dishes. it was something that... I would have gone dishes. Dishes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, because I'm from, like, it doesn't compare, but I'm the youngest of five, and um, dishes was, like, a huge thing. It was yeah. something we would fight over, like, probably every night. <laughs> and I would just be like to my mum and dad, just buy a fucking dishwasher. <laughs> just like... <laughs> buy it and end this <laughs> and then they bought one when I moved out <laughs> um, so is there anything now that uh, so I know this is your first time talking about it publicly in terms of like your own relationships friendships people that you just meet now in your life is it something you're like free and easy talking about yeah or? I'm I'm a lot more it's fine now I think I mean it's a it's kind of a party trip you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. people my HF had made a friend in the first year of uni and he was like oh my family is so complicated blah 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 and we joke about it now because I just sat him down and I was like listen to this <laughs> <laughs> and he was like oh okay um so I am um it was it was sort of later years of high school where I was sort of I was actually like oh, fuck I get like three Christmases yeah that's dope. I get so much food like yeah. if if my mums don't actually talk to each other so if like one says no oh mum like you know other, yeah. other mum when but, I was um, when I was younger I was like really gunning for my parents to divorce um, so that I could like double up on Christmas <laughs> I, I didn't really have a comprehension of the other the other thing yeah, so yeah. I was just like damn I could work that situation <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much for sharing with us tonight it was awesome to hear about Lillian, everyone. I love OHP paper. When I did have my 18th birthday party, I printed the invitations on OHP because I was like, no one will be able to copy this. <laughs> and then they all did. Uh, it was a blowout. It was a great night. Um, I'm glad you all know that about me now. Uh, <laughs> let's move on with our final speaker for the evening. Uh, Tane Mete, come on up. Yeah, bring the mic down with you so I can hear grab you. Grab the mic, grab the mic. Grab the mic. So, Tani, you're a dancer and a yoga teacher. I am, yes. We, which came first? Um, I've been dancing for, I actually just, uh, I wrote it down the other day, I've been dancing for 36 years now. Oh, so, um, yeah, that was my first thing. Did you do it all kind of like throughout school or how did you get into um, it? Yeah, I fell into dance through when I was in high school actually. I, it was funny because I went to with some friends um, after school. Uh, they said, look, come with us. So I thought, okay, cool. So I followed them and not realising that I was going to a dance class and then watched and they said, look, sit down there, cool. And um, the teacher said, well, perhaps maybe you could join sometime. And I thought, okay, well, I've got to watch it first. And then... Um, <laughs> And I couldn't get why one of my friends was using her left foot because you should be using your right foot. And I'd say, right foot, right foot. 
she'd use the left foot. So, oh. on that, starting to dance. Are there people who you meet, and I'm not asking for me, I'm asking for a friend, um, uh, who you're just like, you'll never be able to learn to dance? <laughs> Well, you know... I'm asking for me. <laughs> <laughs> everyone can dance, honestly. If I would say that honestly, everyone can dance oh, in some right. form. Whether if they do it in the shower or when everyone's out and it's for the stereo or in big groups mm. or you're really out of it and you're partying, you know. But it's... Yeah, everyone <laughs> dances, man. It's awesome. Oh, well, forget my ambition thing. I'm going to... New New Year's resolution, uh, dance. Yeah, cool. Do it. <laughs> Do it, do it, do it. I've made this all about me. Um, no, that's right. Let's just. Anything you want to say about your talk before you give it? No, not really. I think it's just dive straight in head first. Great. All right. Let's give Tane a round of applause, everyone. Uh, kia ora koutou, uh, ko tāne me te nō me konisha ahau, uh, nō ngā tikahungunu me ngāti kōriki. Uh, awesome. It's so awesome to be here this evening and listen to the wonderful stories. Thank you. Uh, I guess pride, that's something that's um, just when I, I, I got asked to come along tonight I, and I was scanning my brain and what thing would really jump out to me and I think it's most recently... Uh, was a moment in my life where it was incredibly pivotal and I needed to really sink all the forces that I could gather into this one moment to pull it all together for myself. Uh, on the 18th of December last year, uh, in, sorry, 2015, my mother passed away and um, she was 83. And I remember as a child, and it was actually what, what drew me to the the coming home back to New Zealand, I was with my company, Okereka Dance Company. We were performing in Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival with a show called K-Road Strip. And it's a, it was a smash hit show and we were over there going like rockets and the show was going off and we were selling out and we got really good houses, great reviews, uh, five star reviews five times. And... Um, so everything was great, and then one day I got a phone call which really rocked my world, and it really put me, I felt like I was on the top of the world, but I got a phone call to say, brother, you need to come home now. And I thought, okay, well, you know, you haven't said why, but uh, so I kind of, I did panic, of course, and then asked my brother, well, what's, what's happened? And he said, it's mum. And I thought, oh shit. I think that's that signal that we get sometimes when you just know when someone says a couple of words and nothing else that you kind of just need to do it. So here I was, you know, everything turning around in my head. The company, the show, what do I do? Da, 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 da. If I go, we have to quit. We have to give back all that money. And it's like, shit. Um, so I decided to, for everything, stay with the show. And I it finished, but... It was really bizarre because while I was there, all the stuff started happening, started turning up for myself. I started, shit started coming up for myself and I was processing things all a bit wonky and crooked and coming out kind of wrong. Um, and, you know, really laying into the dance is something chronic and it was all firing back in my face. So I arrived back in New Zealand and I got back to Auckland and I jumped in my car and I drove down to Napier where my uh, family are. I'm the youngest of seven. And it was incredibly confronting for me to see my mother in a place where 
basically we were um, there was no getting well. She was at a point where uh, very soon she was going to pass away. So it was trying to find that space where we could all be together, honestly, children getting on, no arguments, and just focus on the one thing, which is mum. So my little big ego and uh, getting there and being the youngest child and uh, you know the most vocal, um, I couldn't, you know, and I was just trying to me to process stuff and um, leading people. That was something that I was very good with. And so landing and uh, being the youngest and being told what to do by my oldest brothers and my sister was not going down very well with me. And so I, um, yeah, and I guess it, it was at a moment where I was at turmoil because I had to step right back. And I had to really drop my big old ego and just completely just do nothing but land. And so I, um, you know, there was crying, of course, and stories about how this came to be for our mum, who pretty much really had three months to live, in which she only had three months in the end. Um, and so here I was trying to connect with my mother, because the last time I saw her, she was walking, she was very fit, she was able, she was in the garden, to now completely lying on her back, um, moving her eyes and, and um, you know, calling out to whoever child to come into the room and just keep her company, which was awesome. And so this, it started this process for me where I tried, tried to kind of find a way to connect because it was all a bit much. Um, so one day my, my sister, who decided, okay, mum only wants us to wash her, bathe her, wash her hair. She doesn't want any nurses. She tells them all to fuck off, get the fuck out of my house, and don't you even, uh. And so, okay, so we were going around the table, okay, well, who's going to bathe mum? Who's going to do this? Who's going to, gosh, shit. And we're all like going, kind of pointing at each other, you do it. No, you do it. So my sister got the job and, um, of bathing my mother, and uh, it felt like she was actually like, I don't know, uh, so I'd hear them kind of fighting in the room, no, you're pulling my hair. And uh, my sister probably lasted a month where she had that role, so to speak, and then she go, that's it, fuck it, I'm, I'm not doing it anymore, mum's being a bitch. So I thought, well, God, you know, we've got to bath our mother, we can't not not bath our mother. And so my brother said, well, why don't you do it, pointing at me, and I thought he was pointing at my brother behind me, and no, me. So I thought, shit, I, well, I guess I'm actually probably the next in line, being the girl boy, whoever. And then, um, so I went to mum and I said, look, mum, you know, we need to give you your bath. Would you allow me to do that? And she kind of looked at me and thought, well, your sister, of course, it should be your sister. And I said, I know, but, you know, the argument that you guys had last week and the week before and today and yesterday, it's kind of not going to happen again. So she said, yes, of course, you know, why not? So I, you know, um, very delicate as she was, her little nighty, you had to take off the nighty for me, and, and just in this complete place of humility, drop everything, I'm of service, this is something I need to do. 
And so began to hear, and I could hear all this stuff going on with my mum. Oh, God, you're fucking hurting me. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm using sponges, you know, nice delicate cloths, nice fragrances and soaps. I was doing everything I could possibly do. And washed her from head to toe. And um, then I realised, oh, your feet need something, because being a dancer, we were, well, I look after my feet being a dancer. I don't know how all the other dancers look after their feet. <laughs> but I'm quite particular. So, and I noticed that she needed her, her feet done, and that was sanding and grooming the toes and cutting them back and snipping them back so that they don't grow inwards. And so I started this, and she hadn't had her feet touched in so long that it was actually quite painful, but I didn't realise... And then I said, well, Lisha, I know some really good foot oil. I need to get that oil in there to supple up the feet. So it started a process of this. And so every day I'd wash her hair, comb her hair. Um, it would be um, a bath, uh, a sponge wash, by the way, not in the shower. And um, flip her over, flip her over again, put on her nightie, and then I'd do her feet. And I started massaging her feet one day. And then she's, and I said, is this okay? Is this? And she said, yes, let's just keep going. You know, it's pretty painful. And I said, well, look, Mum, I do massage as well. Maybe I can give you a massage. And she said, well, just go very gently. So I'd press very lightly with the oil and go through her hands and then her, her back. And, then, and I noticed that her eyes were completely shut. I think she was loving it. So um, that was cool. And I changed her, put her to sleep and everything and fed her and then... I ran off to yoga because that was kind of my thing that I needed to get for myself, store up some energy because it was fast going. And then the next day, the next day came and she said, and I gave her a full bath and she said, oh, you know, I'd like another massage. And I think, great, because that takes an hour, mum. So I thought, okay. So this became a ritual of every day I'd bathe her, I'd feed her, put her to bed and give her a full massage every day. Something absolutely incredible happened. And that was, I started seeing a massive shift in her. Um, there was softness in her face. There was, it felt like her eyebrows were, were widening in between her third eye center and it was really broadening and her heart was opening. And I think she just felt great in her skin and that's what it seemed like to me. So um, then she, I started talking about all these old photographs that are on our walls and they've been there for years. And no one's ever known who they are and what they are. So slowly, at like, you know, mum was keeping me up with all these stories that she was telling me. And at the same time, I was writing them all down. And um, so I slowly got all these old photographs off the wall. And I said, you need to tell me about this person. And all of a sudden, the space opened where she explained exactly who the person was, the relationship to the family. And basically, she gave me all this papa, which no one in the family had. So I quickly flipped it over, wrote down the whole history on the back, and then move on to the next one. So 18 pictures later, I got the entire papa, which no one in my family has ever gotten. Um, there was a time, I mean, my brother and I were completely at each other's necks all the time. He was a real shit, he was a real prick, and he was my childhood bully. So to see him there looking after our mother, him and I across the bed from each other helping to lift her and carry her, get her to the bathroom. It actually did something amazing. I actually, in my mind, forgave him because we were of service to our mother. So somehow that neutralized everything. It just kind of put everything at none, you know, like zero. So I did a lot of forgiving for him for, for whatever, you know, the amount of beatings I used to get from him. Um, so 
but there came a particular day where him and I just fought continuously and because I felt like I was just you know everything that I did wasn't pleasing him so and I just felt like giving up actually so I said to mum mum I need to go back to Auckland and she said well why and I said I need to do some work I need to you know so I was completely bullshitting because I felt like I couldn't tell it was your you know my me and my brother and I were arguing too much um and then so I grabbed my phone and I started to email back to my company and um, people that I needed to do work for. And then my mum stopped me in half flight and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, mum, I've... no, sorry, she said, what have you got? And I said, well, it's my phone because I need to do my work. You know, this is what I do. And she says, well, but I'm your work right now. And at that point, I was like, holy shit. It just makes kind of sense. So I said, I'm just going to the bathroom. Rang my work. Okay, everyone, I'm not fucking coming back. I'm going to stay here. you got to look after all this shit because I'm not coming. And so I stayed for another couple of weeks. I think that really did an amazing thing for me. It actually allowed me to stay present with the one person that I needed to do most of the work, all of my work for, because she had done that for me and my family. Um, and yet again, my brother and I argued and argued, and I said, brother, I've had enough. I've got to go. So I left, and I said, mum, I do have to go to Auckland, which is kind of true, because I needed to follow up some things about a tour. And I got in the car, stormed off. I was kind of crying, going, oh, fucking And um, I got back up to Auckland, and two days later, my mother passed away. And I remember thinking, shit. You know, why did I let mum's, um, why did I leave her? You know, this is a massive question. And as I was traveling, and so as I got on the car early in the morning when I heard the news, I was driving back, you know, <laughs> the taps were on, and a friend of mine in Canada messaged me and she said, Tani, I just had a dream about you last night. Well, sorry, not about you, but about your mother. And I said, okay, well, you know, I pulled on the side of the road, cried some more probably, and then opened up the message and she said, I had this dream that your mother was set up, she was in a bed, and then she stood up and she walked towards this light. And um, when she pulled her curtain, uh, there was a light in front of her and there were her friends, and then she moved towards them and she smiled. And she said, but when she, when she went towards them, she said, you were fully in her heart. And I thought, holy shit. And I just completely lost the plot to know that my mum was actually, she was thinking of me when she was going to the other side. Amazing. And that completely, but still, however, I still felt this, carried this guilt, this incredible massive guilt for leaving my mother. Months later, there's, it's customary to take back your kawemate, and as someone who has passed away, you take back their spirit to the marae, where they are from. So I did that with my mother's picture, which you have to take back, and a light prayer to exchange and give back to the marae. And that's the returning home for her soul. And in this time, I already had my dance company, we were up here in Auckland, we were performing, we had the shows on, there were sellout shows, and then... In the morning, I was driving back to my mother's marae with her photo, DDD, and we entered the marae, and I gave and exchanged the photo. And somehow, one of the women said, you've opened up space, your mother's here now. And um, so I got a little bit, uh, very incredibly tearful. 
And then I left at the end of the day, thank you, and then I drove back up to Auckland to see the last show of Manawahine, uh, which is a show we travel to Netherlands next month. And um, I had finished the show, and normally my role is to clean up and get the dancers' costumes in, and then pack up the set, and then the tables, and a woman came up to me, she tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, I have a message for you. And I thought, great, cool, I've got to go and do the costumes, I'll be back in a sec. So I did the costumes and I came back and I said, you have a message for me? And she said, yes, I have a message from your mother. And I completely lost the plot. I was like, don't even say that. <laughs> but for a whole while, I had felt this incredible guilt, always. And she said, no, your mother was, I was, I was out in the seat and your mother... She came on stage and she apparently saw me and she started, she said, but there were other tupuna there as well. There were other spirits. So she was trying to get past them and push them aside. I said, ah, that's my mother. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. And so she came up to, my, to this person and said, you need to tell my son something. You need to tell him tonight. And so, and so while she was kind of telling me the story, I was, you know, completely lost the plot. And she, she held my hand, she said, your mother told me to say to you, when you left that day, it was the right day to go. When you, that whenever I used to talk to her and call to her, she heard every word. Um, and that what I am doing now and what I do creatively is the best place I could possibly be and stay there. So I, and you know what, that night when I got this news, I slept for 15 hours and I felt, shit, this, my shoulders are so easy. Um, and it made me realize, man, if I had to carry that guilt with me for the rest of my life, shit, I would have been holding rocks on my back, you know, like. So I was so grateful for that message and the power and the pride that I have and my mother for sending me that great message and knowing, but a message also said she's, uh, that she will never be back. She won't be back again in this life because she's already come. But if I need her and I really need to call to her, she'll come back for that message and then she'll leave again. Um, the incredible gift that that gave was, inc it was amazing. And I remember when I was in Napier looking after my mother, I, I needed to do yoga because that was my escape also. And so I was teaching yoga there. And then um, one day I left my iPhone at home and I kind of, kind of after my mum told me, I put the iPhone in my bag and I thought, bad iPhone, bad iPhone. So um, I forgot to take it to yoga class. So I realized that I had all my shavasana music all my to end my class and I hadn't taken I thought shit what do I do and so I thought I remember this waiata when I was a kid and it was the waiata that I sung at my mother's funeral so it just really brought everything home for me for Tori peka kio ti ahomai raro to itepo heiko nau titiro atuai ora mate heyo kwen no hoa 
one question for you uh, a lot of people who talk about the experience of the, the death of a, a close uh, family member talk about it as being like a transformative time or a time that creates greater intimacy with, with that person and I guess my question always for people who have been through it is is that something you can come to before you reach the point where you know somebody is dying or does it necess- is it ne- you know do you have to have that kind of gravity and you know, and I think it's when you're connecting with someone that's of love and uh, someone that's 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 in your life. I mean, it can come in so many ways, mm. in terms, and it and sometimes it doesn't even have to be a family member. It's something that you, someone you really resonate with and connect with. Um, and it was interesting. I had a friend who passed away when I was in school, and. And even though that she was actually, she sat two seats back from me when I was in high school. And for some reason, the, the night before, uh, not the night before, um, a couple of nights after I had this dream that we were um, in the same room and she clearly just clearly spoke. I don't even know. It, that just came back to me after I had gone through the experience with my mum. So, um, no, and I think people connect in their own way and it comes in different forms, yeah. And that, and that lesson you had about kind of like recognizing if you had held on to this guilt that you felt at the time, mm. you know the 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 effect that could have had on you. Do you feel like you've been able to kind of apply that to other things and letting go of other stuff? You know what, totally. And um, and I think what helped a process with that as well is that when I was travelling to to Napier to after my mum had passed away, a friend of mine in Canada who rang and said I had a dream about your mother. Um, so she said, when I told her that actually my mum had passed away and I'm driving there now, and then a day later she she messaged again and said, look, here's a ceremony that you should try if this is for you, because I'm an avid gardener and I, and I got that from my mother. Actually, she's she was always in the garden. She loves vegetables. She grows things that she loves to eat and flowers. So I kind of adopted that. Well, it was kind of, we kind of had to bloody do it whether we liked it or not, actually. <laughs> she just got us in there. It was and your life garden. It was my, yeah, that's right. And <laughs> Yes, my life garden. <laughs> um, and I, in my own garden, which I love, and it's a space where I visit all the time, um, she said her grandmother mentioned that when her, her auntie passed away, that she was told to when she went to a place of silence to have two cups of tea. It would be one for her and one for the, you know. 
deceased. And when she had finished her cup, she would pour the cup into the earth. And I kind of resonated with it because I mean, I'm a, I love tea. I drink it all day long, you know. And I love gardens. So um, I did this and I started, and it, it was kind of became a ritual. And my neighbors were like, What are you doing, dude? And I'm like, Okay, well, I'm having a cup of tea with my mum. This is my little moment. And they went, Okay, sweet. <laughs> and then it got to the point so much that I'd have two cups of tea wandering down to the garden, got tea with mum. And I'm like, Sure. Um, but that helped me so much. Mm. It, and that was my point of connectedness where I had with my mother because I think those were the message where we, she could hear, because I used to pour my heart into it, you know. Yeah. And I think those were the messages that she was receiving. So, yeah, that was my pride moment. Yeah. Oh, well, th- thank you so much for sharing with us this evening. Tane, everybody. Uh, so that was the water cooler for this month. Uh, they're going to be on every month. The, all the speakers you've heard tonight, uh, it's going to be released in podcast form as well. So if you want to be able to steer, share the story with anyone, uh, you can look it up or you just want to relive the moment again uh, for yourself, you can do that too. Uh, I don't. Does anybody have a show in the Pride Festival or anything they want to plug this evening? Okay, well, we'll just plug the Pride Festival in general. Uh, you do? Which what? Oh, your favourite one. <laughs> okay. Great. And so where can people go for information? Q Theatre website and, or iTicket? And Facebook. Okay, great. Uh, there's also a show on here at the basement. I think it's called First Dates. And I was um, sitting backstage waiting for here and uh, people were laughing. They were loving it. So you should come along and check that out as well. Uh, my name's Alice. I'm going to have a show in the Comedy Festival. So if you remember that that's happening, uh, it's not until like May, but you can come and see it then. <laughs> uh, it's called Self Titled. Um, and uh, I'm in Snort. That's on here every Friday night at the basement. It's on tomorrow night. Um, this is me just doing all my plugs now. <laughs> and I also host another um, podcast with Rose Matafeo called Boners of the Heart, um, which doesn't quite have the gravity of this one, <laughs> um, but it's fun anyway. So anyway, thank you to everyone for coming tonight and uh, come again next month. There'll be new speakers and a new host. Cheers. Cheers.